You are listening to You Heard It Here Second, episode 29. This episode is brought to you by Murphy Brothers Entertainment, the family that parties together stays together. The podcast is produced every Monday night and airs every Tuesday morning. More information can be found on our website, DerekAndSteve.com. Derek and Steve present. I'm gonna tell you about my town. I'm gonna tell you a big fat story, baby. I'll tell about my town. You heard it here second. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to episode 29 of You Heard It Here Second. I am Derek, and there is no Steve today, as Steve is away in New York City for the week. And normally we skip uh, the podcast when Steve is not here, but I will be doing it solo today by uh, welcoming on a few guests, who I will introduce shortly. But uh, first, we'll break down what's coming up in the episode for you. So, uh, really just two halves of the episode today. Uh, The first half and the majority of it, for a lot of you, this might be good news. For some of you, maybe bad news, but... Boston Sports will dominate the first uh, large majority of the podcast today. Uh, so I'll welcome on my brother, Adam, to be joining me uh, for the Boston Sports section. So we'll get to him in just a moment. Uh, and after that, I will be welcoming on Murph. As usual, one of our recurring guests uh, comes to the rescue with Steve Gone. Uh, we'll be breaking down the second episode that aired last night of The Night Of on HBO. Uh, we will contain some spoilers in that one, as we mentioned, and we'll start talking about that show probably weekly because it looks like it's going to be something... Uh, that hangs around. So without further ado, I now want to welcome on uh, our remote guest, which is Adam Robinson, my brother, who will be joining us to talk Boston sports. Adam, what's going on? How you doing? It's good to uh, good to finally get on one year. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, so Adam's connected through Skype and uh, hopefully the audio will be uh, good throughout it. So uh, we've broken down all the sports and, and Adam's one of the one of the experts I can rely on for for sports talk like this. So uh, glad to have you on. Thank you. It's good to be here. All let's right, get it started. Yeah, let's get it going. So here we go. So uh, we'll start with maybe the team that is not the uh, biggest story right now, but the, the single biggest story of however long has just uh, finally come to an end with Tom Brady giving up his fight into Flategate. Uh, Roger Goodell, the devil, wins. Uh, Tom Brady will be suspended for the first four games of the season. The NFLPA is still pursuing some action, I believe. They're, they're looking to try to win this case on the precedent for the rest of the players, but it does look very likely that Brady will be suspended for the first four games of 2016. So... Uh, I guess th- this one's kind of our shortest topic, but what are your thoughts on Brady losing the Deflategate battle? Uh, not that anyone at this point, w- w- no rational people at this point, should believe that had any- anything to do with innocence or guilt. But what are your thoughts on Brady losing it at this stage after such a long fight? Right, and at this stage, you know, it, d- it didn't have anything to do with innocence or guilt. It's a it's a battle of power between collective bargaining at this stage. Um, I- I'm ready for it to be over personally, and uh, I'm pretty sure that the suspension is going to hold because he's not for which would get him to be able to play until it is decided because that could, you know, and have him serving games later in the season. So I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure it's 100%. He is serving these four games. Um, and you know, you can, you can look at it as a good thing. Uh, get Jimmy Garoppolo some time, get Brady some uh, much needed rest at the age of 39 and just get this whole thing, you know, out of the way with, with and let the NFLPA fight it on the uh, collective bargaining side and continue to fight that in the courts. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, I think that this is one, obviously, as a Pats fan, you, you really wanted to win this one. It, it stung from the beginning that it was so, you know, really unjust, ultimately. Whether or not you actually believe anything happened, which 
right. don't, and I think you don't as well. Um, but even even if something did happen, it, it's just a ridiculous punishment for the crime. Uh, and, and so from the get-go, you wanted to win this thing. But I think when Absolutely. it comes down to it, when it comes down to it, you're actually right. I, I think that this can be a good thing for the Pats. The, the, only, the only downside that a lot of people forget about the suspensions is that uh, technically the player can't be with the team uh, when he's suspended for those four games. So Brady... I don't know how much I don't know how much teams bend the rules with this kind of thing. I don't know how much maybe he's hanging around, you know, under the under the under the radar a little bit. But Brady technically can't be with the team for four games, so that that will hurt in some ways with with you know scouting and staying you know in sync with the offense and everything like that. But ultimately, I think that you're right that Jimmy Garoppolo getting four games to start the season can potentially skyrocket his trade value. I mean, if you look at some of the Patriots uh, backups to Tom Brady that they've had in the past, they've gotten some good prices in returns uh, for these guys that are really not even proven. And so if Jimmy G can go out there and prove himself, you know, you might be looking at a pretty good draft pick or, or maybe a better better package that you can get at some, of some sort, you know, moving forward uh, if Absolutely. he's able to go three and one or something like that. It's unbelievable what people do for an unproven quarterback just to, just to have a quarterback. And, uh, and you're right, it, it could skyrocket his trade value, but I do want to play contrarian here and uh, say what no Patriots fan is looking at. What if it hurts his trade value? That's true. The question is, yeah, a lot of people think the Patriots will be fine in the first four games, but maybe the Patriots go two and two. You know, that, that's a possibility. Right. You've got a tough Cardinals team in a couple of division games. So, you know, if the Patriots go two and two, for example, now that is a, an unfortunate possibility that is true is that not only could Jimmy G's trade value plummet, but you're now left in a case of, well, he's also not the successor to Tom Brady if he's maybe not what you thought he was. Exactly, and and I personally think that they are going to go two and two. I think that Cardinals game is way too much to ask Jimmy Garoppolo to come in a first game on the road, prime time, and beat that defense. Um, and then what does that do for his confidence? Does he come back the next week jitterish? Like, does he come back confident? Right. Who knows? And I do think three and one is a possibility. I do think one and three is a possibility. I, I think he'll get a game, um, but you know I'm looking at it saying two and two, and then. Uh, you know, as a team, though, you got to love week five, Brady coming back, the morale. <laughs> if you're healthy, man, that's going to start a locomotive. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That that one, you got to feel bad for Cleveland. Actually, no, no one feels bad for Cleveland at this stage. But <laughs> but, but come, come that day, I think we're going to be feeling bad for Cleveland again. And maybe that'll be the start of Cleveland's uh, success finally going back on a downward slope as opposed to an upward slope. But And then, uh, and then week six, uh, we get another Ohio team and, and we're on to Cincinnati and I'm sure Gillette's going to be absolutely bumping. Yeah, that'll be Brady. The uh, week five versus Cleveland is on the road. I believe it is. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Cincinnati at home uh, with the Gillette crowd finally getting to go out there and support Tom Brady for the first time back from his suspension. So, yeah, definitely. I think ultimately glass half full. This is this is not the worst thing in the world. It'll, it gives the Patriots a window to be able to see what they have in Jimmy Garoppolo to be able to prepare for. You know, get Jimmy Garoppolo some experience. You know, that that's an even an even bigger feared outcome. But, you know, somewhere down the line, you might actually need Garoppolo to play an important game if Tom Brady gets hurt or anything like that. It's happened once in the past. So, you know, get him some experience, gauge his trade value. Ultimately, in the best case scenario, his his trade value skyrockets. uh, Or, you know, he just shows that he's a good quarterback and that he's he's an option for the Patriots moving forward. Because the other sad thing about this is that we we don't know when Brady will decline. I mean, Brady hasn't started declining yet, but it, it can happen at any time once you get up to 40. So, Garoppolo is also soon up for a contract, which is another huge factor. So. Yeah, right. And and the sooner you can gauge that trade value, you know, once he's once his contract's about to expire, you get a lot less for him, which I think 
might have been the case with Ryan Mallett, someone who also maybe isn't deserving, but a few years prior might have you know yielded a higher price tag because of the the question mark and the and the constant over evaluation. I think of Tom Brady's backup quarterbacks. To be honest, it just seems like every team values that experience under Bill Belichick and experience behind Tom Brady maybe more than they should. And so I think that even just a even just a good performance from Garoppolo in these first four weeks would, could lead to teams paying a ransom for him. So absolutely. So uh, that's it for the Pats. I think just wanted to touch on the Brady fight um, again. The NFLPA is going to still fight it, and hopefully they win it uh, eventually. I mean, this is a bad precedent for players with Goodell being able to just do whatever he wants. Really, I mean, I mean, not not a justified action, not consistent with other punishments. So we'll see what happens there. But uh, moving forward, we'll go to the next topic, which has been probably of the four, the biggest uh, topic of these four Boston teams over the last month or so, which is the Boston Celtics offseason. So we haven't talked about this much on the podcast because Steve and I keep it on more of a natu- uh, national level. So let's talk first from the draft. So we can go back to the draft. Adam and I were both there uh, at the draft party at the Garden and big expectations going into that night. Number three pick for the Celtics. Uh, lots of trade rumors, Jimmy Butler, Jalil Okafor, Nerlens Noel, all these names being thrown around. Uh, ultimately, nothing happens, and it was disappointing at the time. But let's step back a little bit after a few weeks, uh, a month here after the draft. And Jalen Brown looks very good in summer league. What are your thoughts overall on the way this whole thing has kind of transpired over the last month? Yeah, I think uh, I think high expectations kind of uh, you know dampers reality in a sense, and it feel like less happened when really you got a 19 year old kid and can flat out get to the rim um people are looking at picking third overall as a bad thing I, since when in the world is picking a third overall a bad thing you know and, and i i'm you and i probably are both two of the people that were in this majority that was disappointed when no trade happened and of course you want to see them win now you want to see them make a big trade for now but when you actually just take a step back like you said and look at it you got you had a great draft. You you got Jalen Brown, a 19 year old, six foot seven, athletic wing, which is exactly what your team needed, right? Last year we we were lacking the the wing position. It was something that the Celtics we needed after Jay Crowder and the injury. It was like where where's the three? Where's the three position coming from? And it was nowhere. It was Jonas Jerebko playing down. It was Marcus Smart having to defend up. Um, Jalen looked absolutely fantastic in summer league. Uh, Terry Rozier looks fantastic in yeah. summer league. Um, yeah, you lose Evan Turner, which is you know undoubtedly a loss. Um, but with the emergence of guys like Terry Rozier, you have an extremely young and athletic bench. And then um, I don't know if you want to touch on the Al Horford signing. Then you know we're getting even an, a different discussion about where this team's going. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you look at the look on the surface. Really, let's start with that. Is that like you said, you lose Evan Turner. That's a that's a valuable piece, a very versatile and valuable piece. Let's look at the flip side. You, you substitute Al Horford in for Jared Sellinger at this point. That that's your first that's your first swap of the offseason, which is an A plus 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 swap. Yes. So now you do that. You add that you add Jalen Brown as an extremely high potential, high ceiling athletic wing player, who in summer league, like we said, take it with a grain of salt. Summer league is not the the be all end all. Lots of guys have been summer league MVPs and not turned into anything. But when you look at the important stuff in summer league, Jalen Brown's getting to the rim. He's being aggressive. He's playing defense. It, his stroke looks pretty good, even though maybe his shooting percentages aren't there yet. This doesn't look like someone who's a completely broken project to try to you know, bring him around and make him into an NBA player. I think Jalen Brown so far looks like a no-fail prospect in that he is, at minimum, his floor is that he's going to be this high-energy, get-to-the-free-throw-line, aggressive wing defender. And you know, if that's all he becomes, it'll be disappointing, but it won't be the end of the world. 
um, th- that's still a very a very good floor for a player that you're getting at that stage. So I, I think that's a great thing. Terry Rozier, on the other hand, his summer league is really giving you a lot of promise here because now uh, it brings me back to the draft night, actually, when you look at what the Celtics have going here with uh, a four-man backcourt, really, of Isaiah Thomas and Avery Bradley, your starters, plus Marcus Smart and now Terry Rozier showing what he can do off the bench. It's, it more or less answers the questions as to why the Celtics didn't draft Buddy Heald or Jamal Murray on draft night because realistically you can't have a five-guard rotation and continue to increase the minutes of these young guys. Someone was going to have to lose minutes if they were to go and draft a guard. So that kind of answers the other side of the coin too when a lot of us really wanted them to go after one of those two big scorers in Buddy Heald and Jamal Murray. And you know what else it answers as well is la- let's take it back even further when they drafted Harry Rogier, Sam Decker. Um, everyone's saying, what are you doing? We need wings. We need a three. We don't need any more guards. And then, you know, it, it, everyone wants to put their GM hat on and, and tell Danny what he's supposed to do. But Danny's the one projecting out here. And Danny now has three extremely good defensive guards and a great off guard. And, and a backcourt that's dynamic is fantastic when you look at athleticism and everything they got going there. And you got a perfect guard rotation here. And and this was all projected out when he when there. He saw this. And people also forget that, you know, guys develop. Guys get better at the sport. You know, that's that's yeah. why you pick him at such a young age for them to develop into what they are. Look no further than a Steph Curry. Right. And to build something sustainable here, maybe maybe you're not getting a championship this year, right? I mean, I mean nothing's out of the question. But yeah, I mean, bar- barring a massive move. Barring I mean, yeah. something massive. You're probably not getting a championship year, so why throw away these assets that could build you something like they got in Golden State or build you something great that's sustainable? Because when you draft a player, you have them under control for four or five years. You know, if you're trading for a Blake, if you're trading for a Russell Westbrook, and they jet after a year, you just threw away all the the compiling of assets you've done for nothing. Whereas if you're picking. People, uh, you know, you hear the Felgers and the Mazes of the world getting all mad that they use all these draft picks. Well, if you're using all those draft picks and one or two is hitting and maybe even three, you know, if all these guys are hitting and you can dump the trash as you go, not only are you going to get way better as a team, way better as an organization, but then the free agents are going to want to start to come. See, look no further than Al Horford because you've been doing this process of compiling assets and dumping the trash and keep and keeping the, the good ones. And then look at Al Horford says, I like what I like what they're building here. And that's going to continue to happen moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. I would think so. And I think that uh, ultimately, so you mentioned Blake and Russ, uh, Russ Westbrook there. So those are the rumors lately. And, and I think it, I think the smartest way to look at this and I, I, it might not be the best. It might not be the most fan friendly way to look at it. But but I think Celtics fans are are smart enough about it and optimistic enough about it to get it is that you're right. And that you look at this situation right now. And, and yeah. You might have a you might have a shot at a title if you went and you got Russell Westbrook this year. Maybe uh, you know I'll, I'll give you that. Maybe in the Eastern Conference, you go get Westbrook. The Celtics might be a title contender, a legitimate title contender this year. But like you said, if that's all you're going to get out of this, and the free agent like Westbrook or Blake Griffin or whoever it is leaves at the end of the season, then you, you've just really demolished what was really a gift from God in this Nets trade, where you have all these assets that are just constantly at your disposal. And and I think that. Uh, you mentioned the Felger and Mazes of the world, you know, being upset that they keep using these picks. Well, I totally agree that building the team the way that Golden State has built their team before signing Kevin Durant, I'm saying all the, the homegrown talent that they've drafted Drafting and developed. And, and so I think that if you look at the landscape of the NBA right now, what the Celtics can be if they continue on their path 
in three or four years when LeBron James is, what, 36, 37, and Steph Curry is now over the hill at, at 32 or 33, and, and Golden State you know, hasn't been able to afford to keep all of their star players at that point in time. The Celtics on their trajectory right now, I know it's not a title this year or maybe not next year, but they project out to be to have a bunch of guys who are 29, 30, and then a, a, another, another crop of them that's 26, 27. And that core can be together for several years as a, as, a, as a true contender. So I think you're right in that you really have to be smart about when you deal these picks. And right now, a guy like Russell Westbrook, I would consider it if you got the, uh, the guarantee of him staying. I mean, he's, he's a franchise-altering player. He's one of the best players in the NBA. So if he were to commit to staying here, I think you can consider it. Blake Griffin has a lot of injury problems in his past. He's not a totally well-rounded player. He can't really shoot very well from the outside. So those are both guys that you'd really like to have. But when you look at the 2017 Nets pick in particular, this draft class is loaded. I know people have said that about draft classes before, but what are your thoughts on whether or not the Celtics can really even entertain at this point trading that Nets pick? Is there even a possi- Is there a situation that you would be okay with them trading the Nets pick at this stage? It's really tough to say. At this stage, I would honestly probably not want them to because I know we we played this game in the past where you know you had your I, I don't I'm sorry if I get the not, last name wrong here, but Scal Labissier Labisserie whatever going to Kentucky last year was the consensus number one, and the guy fell like I don't know almost out of the first round, maybe maybe even did fall out of the first round. So you look at these guys that are coming into this next year's draft, and you're saying, well, what if what if it turns into a Scal, right? What if them what if they aren't what we're touting them to be and you could have got a Russell Westbrook for it? And it's it's a risky game to play, but when you look at the top of this draft with Harry Giles, Jason Tatum, and Josh Jackson, those are three franchise players right now. Like Obviously, the evaluation is still in the works, but right now those are two wings and a four that are exactly what the Celtics need as far as positionally. And... They're, they're there for you because the Nets are the worst team in basketball, bar none. Yep. So that's sure to be a top three pick. Now, you've got to take that asset and you've got to value that. Like, you really have to look into Russell Westbrook and say, do we want Russell Westbrook at the age of, you know, 27 and this core, or do we want to continue to, to build the young assets we have? And there's no saying you can't, you know, Jason Tatum say and then trade him much like the Wiggins for for Kevin Love deal yeah. when you see when you see what kind of free agents come here when you see what's happening but as as for right now you got to treat that pick like gold because you never know when a when a LeBron James Steph Curry Michael Jordan could be in the draft you just never know Russell Westbrook himself could be one of these three guys talent wise you you never know and that's why right now I'd be extremely hesitant to trade in that pick yeah completely agree I think that the the other thing about that pick is that the pick when when other teams are valuing that pick in a trade, uh, it, it tends to be two sides of the same coin. Where it's on one side, the team that's trading for the pick is not going to consider that a consensus lock number one pick because of the way the lottery works and because of the uncertainty of the NBA. I, I mean, the Nets sure as hell look like the worst team in the league, but you know, I guess you never truly know if some other team just completely tanks or is just completely god awful. And so, with that combined with the lottery, is that no team. Uh, you know, and also the the question mark of whether those three stud players will actually be studs. You know, the potential return on that pick, the ceiling for that is way higher than what the floor could be for what teams would value it at. I think in a trade, and so I think you're also losing some value there. Where the Celtics are, like we said, they're not in a position right now where they need to go chase a ring this year. That that's not really in the equation. It's not something that makes sense to go do. It doesn't make sense to go 
you know, take that approach and try to win a ring this year. So if they were in that spot, they would trade the pick. Especially with the Warriors in the West, the way that team is built, like you would have to handpick a team to go at that team. So is it is it really worth it? Right. And it's totally different, for for instance, if the Celtics end up getting Kevin Durant this offseason. You know, if, if that happens, then now you're looking at your window and it's totally shifted, I think, when you've got Isaiah Thomas, Kevin Durant, and Al Horford. Absolutely. N- now your Nets pick should absolutely be traded for Jimmy Butler and you go win, you know, th- you know for s- several years coming up right now. But exactly. since you're not there yet, you look at the potential of another potential franchise superstar maybe coming out of the draft early in 2017. I think you have to treat that pick like gold at this point because, like you said, the alternative is not going to pay itself off before you find out what that that Nets pick can give you. And so, I think at this point, you have to keep you have to hold on to it. I think 2018 pick can be discussed because I think the Nets at some point are going to get better. I mean, you have to think it, eventually they can get better, even though they have no picks to do it with. You just have to assume that the Nets will find a way to get better. Um, but you know, at the same time, I think that 2018 is far enough out that if you could get a go, go get a real valuable guy with that 2018 pick, do it. But right now I'm treating this 2017 pick like gold personally. Yeah. And that 2018 pick, as, as we say, the 2017 pick might be, you know, undervalued by other teams that 18 one may be overvalued. No one knows what it's going to be. So you might get a little bit more back for it than it might end up being worth. Yeah, and I know a lot of people like to write off the idea of kind of looking at the draft class this far ahead and seeing who's in it, but it's kind of it's to be honest, it's it is worth something because you look at you look at for instance when Cleveland had the number one pick uh, several years ago and they took Anthony Bennett. I mean that draft class is is a terrible draft class up top. People knew it, and that number one pick is not worth all that much at all. It's not a star player. He ended up being not very good. So the, the cream of the crop at the top of the class is an extremely important factor in, in evaluating those, those draft picks. And so I think, yeah, you have to absolutely consider that with the 2017 Nets pick versus 2018, that there's three bona fide stars that are considered stars right now. Yes, some of them may drop out, but others may jump in the way that other guys did this year. So I think, you know, in general, you have to trust the process and understand that there's probably going to be a star player available there. And I think the Celtics are... Uh, doing the smart thing by waiting on it. So, you know, hopefully we don't find out in the coming days that they're trading that pick for someone who's not going to put them into title contention right now, which I think is pretty much any, there's nobody available in the league right now, except for maybe Westbrook that puts you into contention this year. So, you know, hopefully they are patient with it. And I think they will be. Danny Ainge has been patient for a while uh, with all these assets. For sure. So that I think wraps up Celtics. So we'll move in uh, to our next team, which is the Red Sox. So uh, the Sox are, Coming back around again, they've won eight of their last ten games. They had some struggles recently, uh, but Dave, the, the big story really is Dave Dombrowski uh, not being afraid at all to trade his prospects and go get the pieces that this team needs. If if the Red Sox fans can come away from the past two or three weeks with one message, it's that Dombrowski thinks this team can win the World Series this year. What do you think? Yeah, and I mean, it's funny when you look at it. Uh, already, two of probably their top six prospects have been shelled to. Sandy in particular for uh, the Craig Kimball trade in the offseason when they got rid of Manuel Margo. And then this latest one with Drew Pomeranz where they get rid of their best pitching prospect, Anderson Espinosa. And I'll say for one, I love it because you got to let's throw sentiment into it, too, because David Ortiz is in his final years of Red Sox. He's brought us three rings. This is the last time he's playing in a Red Sox uniform, at least as he says. You can't tell me winning one ring now, you'd trade two rings in the future for it, right? I mean, yeah, just the, for the sentiment of it, you know, and we could take a look at Anderson Espinosa, right? Uh, all the all the great things that have been said about him. He's 18 years old. 
let's let's give him a extremely high praise and let's say he turns into Jose Fernandez, right? So Jose Fernandez is 23 now. He's, he's figured it out. He's passed his arm surgery and whatnot. That's five years away. Anderson Espinosa at the age of 23 is five years away from right now. You, you have no idea what the landscape your team's going to look like. You yeah. have no idea. That's if he turns into Jose Fernandez. So I will say for one, I understand everyone's viewpoint on this. You know, you what if what if Anderson Espinosa turns into Pedro? You know, I understand that. But Drew Pomeranz right now is supporting a sub 2.5 ERA, and he's added a pitch to his arsenal, the cutter. Uh, they say that has helped him because he was playing too much fastball curveball. And if you if you look at, if you look at the highlights of him, and I know the highlights, you know, there's no low lights in there. Every single strikeout is a curveball. So he sets batters up the way he wants them, and he hits them with a dust. Um, so even if Pomeranz comes in and his ERA shoots up two whole runs, he's at four two seven and he, or whatever four four seven, and he's still better than almost any pitcher on the Red Sox. <laughs> so um, I'm for it, and and I'm excited to see Wednesday night in prime time against a great San Francisco Giants team what Drew Pomeranz has got in his arsenal. On, on an individual basis, you, with this Red Sox team, it's very clear. I mean, the Red Sox need pitching. The, the, every fan out there has been has had it up to here with Clay Buckholtz every time he takes the mound. You know, everybody's voiced their opinions on these things. So it's tough to really be upset with, with Dombrowski going out and getting some pitchers. Now, I think another factor in this is that trading these prospects – um, yeah, you know, in, in a lot of cases, you like to hold on to your prospects and see them pan out. But I think another factor in that is how many of the Red Sox prospects in the past year and a half have come to fruition and panned out and are now playing for the Red Sox starting. Uh, I mean, when you have just had three all-stars in, in Bogarts, Betts, and Bradley that just came up within the past two years, when you've had that type of a turnout from your prospects, you can afford to go get rid of a few of them. I mean, what are all these guys waiting in line for? It's like, how much you, more do you expect? Yeah, how much more do you expect? And also, how much more room do you have if you're committing to these guys? And I know that Espinosa is a pitcher, and these guys aren't pitchers. But just in general, you know, a lot of prospects have come up and taken MLB spots, so that makes some of your other prospects more expendable. It does, and I think uh, when it comes down to it, you're right about Ortiz. I think that. I can't say for sure that that's factoring in with Dombrowski's decision-making, but it certainly could be. I, I mean, David Ortiz has given so much to this franchise over his career, and I think he obviously is having a phenomenal year to go out, and, and this there's there would be no better way for him to end his career, obviously, that goes without saying. But I think you know it could factor into Dombrowski's decision-making a little bit because you do have a window where the AL has also looked kind of weak this year in, in a lot of ways, and the Red Sox, there's a lot going well for them. They've had an historically good offense at times this year, and really, they just need the pitching. And so you have to assume that David Price will figure it out. And now you've suddenly put together with him, Stephen Wright, who's become a Cy Young candidate, essentially, as a knuckleballer. Uh, Andrew Pomerantz, who's who's having, you know, like you said, a phenomenal year with a sub-2.5 ERA. So put those two guys with Price. Uh, and then Porcello, if Porcello is now your number four starter, the complaints are all gone with him. I mean, there's nothing to complain about if Porcello is your number four guy because he's had a perfectly fine year for a number four starter or even or even a number three starter to be honest. So other than uh, other than maybe the contract, eh? you could still, yeah, yeah. but but it's not our money; it's theirs. <laughs> you know, like if they want to pay the man, pay the man. If he's giving you the good the good numbers for a fourth yeah. starter and he's your fourth starter, whatever. If you're paying him twenty two million, he's... yeah. In, in baseball, I find myself not being able to sympathize with that part of it because of the way that baseball works. I, I mean. Right. I mean, who are the Red Sox to complain about how much they're paying a guy when when the Tampa Bay Rays can't even afford to pay you know 
pay their whole payroll more than like 60 or 70 million dollars so exactly um and let's just talk about the pure numbers what you're losing uh, not only the sentiment of david ortiz leaving for, to go get it this year but the fact that you're gonna have a gigantic gap in your lineup next year and maybe that takes you a step down from contender status as well so it's that's yeah. another factor and play a little devil's advocate and play a little uh, on the side of the people who are against the Pomeranz trade. They, they got to form a better argument. If they're, if they want to say that Anderson Espinosa, so, so for instance, I'll, I'll ask you a question right now. Would you trade Andrew Benatendi straight up for Jose Fernandez? For Jose Fernandez? I think, uh, yeah, you got to, you would. And so now take that Drew Pomeranz trade away and throw Anderson Espinosa into that deal. Now, does that not, the pot extremely much like you know extremely to a, to a point where now you're making Miami think about it and right. I, that is the argument that those supporters should be should be coming out with here and I would understand them if that's what they were saying but at the same time you don't know where Miami's mind's at you don't know where Chicago with Chris Sale's mind's at you don't know where they're how, what kind of value they're placing on these guys and if these guys are even available so that's why I say this this Drew Pomeranz deal like you said We've we've been voicing the concerns about buckholes and the fourth and fifth spots. It was an it was an absolutely needed deal. Yeah, some people have also brought up the point that Pomeranz maybe is benefiting from a weak division, but I, I'm not sure I really buy that one either. I mean, it's a it's a big enough sample size at this stage in the season that that yeah, I, I mean, I think there's one side where you can say that sometimes guys will have a good season kind of out of the blue. You know, may, maybe he's not a career two four seven ERA, but. Uh, at, at least you can say that it it certainly looks like he's going to this is what he is this year. I, I mean guys generally don't just blow up at a certain point of a season. You know, they may not sustain that the next season. You know, Daisuke Matsuzaka had a year he went I think 18 and 3 and had like a 2.9 ERA. And, and so he didn't blow up at any point in that season. He 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 sucked the rest of his career, but Perfect. but you know, during that season he didn't just all of a sudden lose it. You know, guys get into a rhythm they are what they are during a season, and, and this season Pomeranz is a two four seven ERA. So, you know, if that's what you're getting for this year to try to go win a World Series with David Ortiz, yeah, I think it's it's got to be worth one prospect who's an 18-year-old and, and could have the highest ceiling in the world. But, you know, in the sport of baseball, like you said, that's five years from now that he might be Jose Fernandez. And at that stage, you've got, you know, Jackie Bradley at age 31, and it's like you can't even envision what, what the landscape of the team or the league is at that point. So... Uh, it's it's tough to really commit to that and say that that's uh, just this, you know, atrocious loss to the farm system when, you know, y you'd rather, I, personally, I'd rather Dombrowski be consistent if he's willing to give up some prospects this year than give them up and get the players to win the World Series. And, and I think that the Pomeranz trade is showing that that's what he's willing to do. You know, it's totally fair as a fan to be skeptical of that, I think. You know, Dombrowski had... I think sometimes in Detroit that he was accused of a similar thing in overpaying and maybe making some some uh, impatient decisions. You know, you, you can you can be skeptical of it. But I think for this season, there's nothing really to freak out about because they've they're improving this year. They have a good shot to win the World Series. And, and you know, I think it's something you got to do at some point. You can't just sit on the on the farm system forever. And we've seen plenty of guys like Henry Owens and a few other guys who just look like they may never turn into the guy we thought they'd be. So. Uh, Trey Ball is another one who was, I think, drafted yeah. very highly. So, you know, these guys don't always pan out. And I think, um, you know, Clay Buckles didn't pan out. So I, I think a lot of these guys uh, are expendable when they're so young. And, and you know, I, I can't find any problem with uh, what Dombrowski's doing here to try to win it all. Right. And it, it, another thing, too, is worth noting on Pomeranz is that he was the former number five overall pick. Started out pitching in Colorado, which is horrible for, for um, a horrible pitcher's park. 
And then he was tugged around and put in the bullpen. You know, a guy who was very highly, you know, sought after early on in his career had some down spells, but pitched under under a 1.2 whip the last two years in in Oakland. And the sample size was pretty large. I think over the two seasons, he had about 150 innings combined, and the ERA was sub 3.5, and the whip was sub 1.2. So right. where we want to say that it's just a one-year sample, and it is, if you combine the, the the numbers from the past two years within the AL, the numbers were still good. And he was a number five overall pick, so the talent is there. Yeah, so uh, we'll see what happens. I think that it's, uh, it's a good move right now, and I think it's something that Red Sox fans, at the very least, can get excited about for this year because there's no excuses anymore. you got the arms on this team. You know, the guys have to start performing. When Kimbrell comes back, he's got he's to be better than he was, I think, in the first half. Uh, and same with yeah, David Price. Sure. So there's a lot of guys here. We didn't even mention Brad Ziegler, who's also another good pickup in a closer for Arizona, who comes in and helps the back end of the bullpen immediately. Um, and so now when everyone's back and healthy, you can maybe ask a little bit less of Koji, which I think I think, I think, think the Red Sox were asking a lot of him at his age. Um, yeah. After, I mean, at, at this point, everything's house money with Koji after what he came in here and did in 2013, you know, at his age. Um, you know, having having that season was was essentially a miracle that he had that year in 2013. Um, but yeah, so if, if you can ask less of him, maybe have him be a seventh inning guy, sometimes an eighth inning guy, and don't ever ask him to do more than an inning and kind of, if you can keep him in check, then he can still be effective, I think. And so, I, you know, that's not to be forgotten either is the back end of that bullpen has added a lot. And at this point, you look at the lineup and there's not a whole lot, you know, pitching and hitting that you can say this team is lacking uh, to be able to win. It's just the guys have to go out there and perform. Absolutely. I've, Nothing to say against that. That's all exactly the way I feel. All righty. So, uh, so that wraps up the Red Sox, and we go into the final few minutes here, which we will talk about the Bruins for a few. So, uh, overall, offseason has been pretty quiet for the Bees. Uh, they did sign David Backus, who's a pretty pretty fan friendly signing. I think he's always been a good player for the St. Louis Blues. Uh, so he's he signs, I think, a six million dollar a year deal. I think it was five years, six million per. Um, so Backus signs, and other than that, relatively quiet. They extend Tory Krug. Uh, that one met with some criticism, I think, uh, for being a little bit of an overpayment. But at the same time, Krug is one of the few uh, offensive-minded defensemen the Bruins have. Uh, so, you know, maybe Sweeney didn't have much of a choice there. But what we want to talk about is what might be coming up on the horizon for the Bruins in maybe still more of a quiet way. Uh, Jimmy Vesey, the Hobie Baker Award winner from Harvard University, uh, is going to be a free agent on August 15th. And he has a very short list of teams, which the Bruins are reportedly on not even reportedly, I think, at this point. I think he's even said that the Bruins are on his list. Uh, so basically, the, the kid from Charlestown that went to Harvard now has his pick, and the Bruins could would love to have a, a young forward like Jimmy Vesey step into their top six. So it sounds perfect. It, do you see it happening, and what's the impact, do you think, if it does happen? I do. I do see it happening, and I think that uh, just watching his interviews and watching the little, the little smirks he, he has when he talks about the bees and, uh, and the fact that you know Buffalo's on that list. That's sure, and and he's a restricted free agent of their team right now because they traded for his rights and they've met with him. So the way I see it is, if he was going to sign in Buffalo, why has he not already done it? Um, maybe he was out there, but he's uh, you know in the end he's going to be on an entry level deal. So it's definitely not doesn't have to do with money. And since he has a short list, he knows who wants him. So his you know I think his decisions made in his head internally right now, given all the all the circumstances. Uh, he's a kid, six two, six three, right? Um, yep. Uh, lefty. Think if you if you do get this kid, if you do get VC in here, you're starting to build something up front. 
with a young core with, with Pasternak being 20 and and VZ being 22 and Spooner being 24 and you know you go down the list as you know Frankie Vetrano being 22 you're, you're you're starting to these are all real young kids that are that are going to be making impacts you know supplemented with your Bergerons who are 30 your Krejci's who are 30 back is 32 you know Bolesky and Marchand somewhere around 28 to 30 so you have like a good offensive core here yeah. And now you now you're just looking at the back end. You're saying, where's the fix? Where's the big fix? You know, Chara's up there in age. Um, you 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 locked up uh, Miller and Krug, so you got two guys there. But but you need that guy, that yeah, guy it. that's gonna succeed, Chara. That that guy needs to come somewhere if you're gonna be a title contender. Yeah, ne- neither Krug or Miller, I think, is uh, probably maybe at this stage even a reliable. You know, I, I won't say they're not reliable top fours, but I don't know if both of them are. Like like, like time time. The jury's still out on those guys, I think. Tory Krug obviously came in like a ball of fire, you know, a few years ago in the playoffs, and he's always had, uh, you know, an offensive flair to his game, but he, he didn't put the puck in the net last year, and I think it, it's it's very fair to wonder if, if those guys are really true top four defensemen. Um, you know, they're, they're definitely top six defensemen. I think they're NHL players, but, um, you know, it, it's still fair to criticize that at this point, and definitely when it comes to a top two defenseman, I don't know if the Bruins have one on the team right now. Um, so I think that's really that, that's a big issue is that you do need a top two defenseman. You know, it doesn't have to be it doesn't have to be what Chara was in his prime for this team. I don't think you need that necessarily like a captain, like, you know, the biggest, strongest, toughest player on the team. But you need someone you need someone close and at least at that level within the defensive core. Um, so, you know, th- th- there, there might be some solutions in house, but not that will come this year, I don't think. Right. Um, we're hearing a lot of stuff about Brandon Carlo making great strides, but again, that's a 19-year-old kid who is not going to step in and be Zdeno Chara this year. So ultimately, I think um, with Jimmy VC signing, if he does sign with the Bruins, I think that it really might open the doors for more uh, flexibility. Maybe you trade a forward for uh, a defenseman. Maybe you have more room to trade some of these young guys, uh, not necessarily the guys that you said that you're projecting to be top nine forwards, but you know maybe some of your organizational prospects are more willing to be dealt now at this point. So uh, I, th- I think it can open up a lot of doors, not to mention adding a potentially very talented top six forward. So I think uh, VC wants to play here. I think that's clear. He grew up here. He, he's always rooted for the Bruins. It's like a dream come true for that kid. I mean, he, he plays college hockey at Harvard. Yep. He, he turned down a chance to go play for the Predators in the playoffs because he wanted to stay at Harvard and keep playing. Uh, and, you know, his, all his friends and family are here. I think that it's, it's, it's got to be a dream come true for him. And I think, like you said, his mind might be made up already. Um, and what it comes down to is that this is a rare situation where the Bruins, who for the first time these past couple of years, for the first time in several years, just have a wide open, you know, it, it's there's no doubt that he can come in here and play, which three or four years ago when they still had an aging core and kind of were on the fringe of title contention, Jimmy VC couldn't have signed here and been guaranteed he was going to get playing time. But I think at this stage he almost is because of the state of the Bruins. So it's kind of a unique scenario, and I, and I, I kind of don't see him turning it down, you know, based on what we've heard from him and what we know about him. I agree completely. Um, uh, to touch on the defensive end, like you mentioned uh, Brendan Carlo being a 19-year-old kid. Also, the first pick this year, Charlie McAvoy. Um, two guys that I think really spell, you know, John Michael Lyles and Zidane Chara moving forward here. Um, but as far as like a band, as far as the team, if, if, if they seem like they're rebuilding on the go here, right? They got the right. young forwards mixed with the old forwards. On the defensive end, they really only got old. They don't. They got some young guys in there, like you mentioned, Krug, uh, Colin Miller, maybe get some time. 
Brandon Carlo and McAvoy on the way. What do they do for now? Do they go back to the defensive core that took the ice last year, or do they make a move? And that's where I look to their options. Uh, Kevin Shattenkirk, to me, seems like the best option. He's still on the Blues. He thinks he's getting traded. They have mentioned trading him. One year, $4.25 million. You know, he's a free agent after the season. So then when you reevaluate McAvoy and Carlo, you don't know that you definitely need to bring him back. Chara's contract goes down $3 million next year. You know, there are, there are reasons Shattenkirk fits so well. Obviously, it, it depends on the price uh, that you'd have to pay to get him. And then the other option being the slew of young defensemen that are restricted right now, uh, such as Jacob Truba and such as uh, Matt Dumba. Yep. Guys like that, 21 years old, 22 years old, guys that you think you could really build around, throw a huge offer sheet at. Because, um, you know, there is cap room. You could make it work. You got guys like Jimmy Hayes making 2.3, um, just guys that could definitely be moved. Uh, if you wanted to talk about moving Krejci's 7.25, there there yeah. are ways. Right. So I think it's it's going to be an interesting, an interesting uh, finish to the offseason for the Bruins. They could be what they were last year. They could be in the playoffs but not – you know, title contenders quite, or they could turn themselves into title contenders with with the right couple moves here. I mean, it's yeah, they're not far. It, it's crazy to think that this this offseason still is up in the air and could go in so many different directions. But I wanted to ask you, do you think, or not do you think, can you tell me, right, the bad moves Don Sweeney has made? Throw Peter Shirelli out the window. Since, since Sweeney right. came in, list me the bad moves if you could. Yeah, I mean... So I don't, I don't think there have been many. I think um, potentially not any. I, I think that um, in in retrospective, I think that maybe the Jimmy Hayes trade was not good. Um, yep. But I supported that trade at the time. I, you know, I looked at Jimmy Hayes, the guy who had just scored 20 goals uh, coming off a season for the Panthers and coming to a better team in the Bruins where he should have been more productive. I thought that trade made sense, and I thought Riley, got rid Riley of the Smith Savard un- contract in that deal. Yep, yeah, got rid of the Savard contract, and Riley Smith had underperformed. I think here uh, it hadn't been what we had expected him to be. So, I thought that was a good trade at the time. Maybe that was a bad one. Um, I think the rest of the criticism of Sweeney has all been a lack uh, uh, criticism over a lack of moves, which is really not always fair. I don't think it's the same thing we just talked about with the Celtics. Exactly. Is that criticizing someone for a lack of moves is really making criticisms without knowing what's going on. I mean, you don't know what was offered. You don't know what trades were available. Uh, Peter Shirelli, there's no denying a bunch of those moves were bad in the second half of his tenure with the Bruins. He made he made a lot of phenomenal moves to build the 2011 Cup team. He made a lot of bad moves to tear it apart, essentially. Um, Don Sweeney hasn't made those moves yet. He hasn't made those bad moves. He's only made, what, he's only made for the most part, what you can call neutral moves. And then uh, I think there have been a few good ones, but you, he certainly hasn't warranted criticism yet because he inherited a mess salary cap wise and roster wise. Um, when you look at, uh, what he inherited there. And I think every now and then you've gotten scared with it. I mean, I think again, the, the other one that you can criticize is maybe overpaying a few guys, I think, but it's, yeah, it's Kevin def- Miller, Kevin it's- Miller, maybe, uh, I think at, at the time the McQuaid contract got a little bit of criticism. I'm not sure. I don't think it's as bad, um, but I think the the thing with those the thing with all those criticisms is that you look again. I'll make a Celtics comparison. When Danny Ainge gave Avery Bradley his contract, it was heavy heavily criticized. Four years at eight million a year, and that contract now this off season 
is ridiculous. I, I probably mean, the most valuable in the NBA next to Crowder. <laughs> yeah, or I mean, on a, on a per year basis, probably Isaiah even this year because he's making only six million. Oh, very true. Very um, true. But but Danny Ainge didn't give that contract, so Danny Ainge gave the Crowder and Bradley contracts, and those are phenomenal deals that at the time people said you might have overpaid for this guy. He's not very proven. So. I, I, I kind of have to hold my judgment on criticizing contract extensions and saying they're overpayments because of what we've seen in other sports. So, um, it, and even within the NHL, I think there there have been extensions that look great afterwards. You know, I think Bergeron's extension is great, um, given what some NHL players can make. Guys can make upwards of ten million a year. So, um, so yeah, I, I think I think the numbers you have to be you have to reserve your judgment on it. I think really you can only criticize what is made at the time. And so far he hasn't made any egregiously bad trades at all. I, I don't think so either. And I think that a lot of the Shirelli backlash comes down and hits Sweeney. Uh, and, you know, you look at the trade deadline last year and people are freaking out about these second round draft picks. And then come draft night, they're not even watching the second round. You know, yeah. it's like, yeah. it's, uh, they traded second round draft picks to try to make a run at playoff hockey. And you know, Fan can tell me they didn't want to see playoff hockey, and th- those second round picks may or may not have turned. In. They made the moves that they felt necessary to get into the playoffs. They added two pretty good players. One of them still going to be Nick right. Miles. Um, I I've been on board with Sweeney so far, and I I have the moves to get this team going in the right direction. People call me call me crazy and uh, and doubt doubt yeah. Don, but i'm i'm the ju- the jury's still out I, yeah it definitely I'm, is i'm I'm ready to see it and i'm ready to see him i think the good moves are coming and people are going to be happy and and david back is a good example it's a it's a pretty good deal it's a that's a solid franchise player for the blues you just brought in yeah and uh good veteran it's gonna, presence. it's gonna help your team yeah and this team's performances in big games has lacked as well so a veteran presence might help uh in that regard so absolutely so we'll see. Big year for the Bruins coming up, and uh, obviously a big one for Sweeney to show that some of these moves have been the right ones. Um, so we'll see what happens with that moving forward. But uh, Adam, thank you so much for joining us. I think that that's all the time we have for sports. Uh, so hopefully have you on again soon. Next time that Steve's out, we'll uh, we'll do another Boston Sports Edition. Yeah, thanks for having me, and I look forward to right. hopefully we'll be talking something completely different, more championships involved. <laughs> yeah, more championships for sure. So all righty, talk to you later. All right, I'll see you. So thanks again to Adam, my brother, for joining us for Boston Sports Talk. Uh, I know we don't do that very often. Obviously, Steve, not a Boston sports fan. So uh, birthday shout out to Steve. His birthday was last week on July 14th. So uh, while he's not here on the podcast today, I did promise I'd wish him a happy birthday. And I'll do that right after the Boston sports, obviously. So I waited for that to finish before doing that. So we got a few minutes left. And now we're going to invite James Murphy back on, as usual, to talk about the night of. James Murphy, thanks again for joining us. I'm back again. James is back again. You can't get rid of me. Even when Steve's not here, James is here always. So thanks again for joining us. And of course, uh, as Steve and I mentioned last week, there's a new HBO drama, uh, The Night Of, which replaced Game of Thrones in the time slot when Game of Thrones ended uh, after taking a week or two off, I think. So uh, The Night Of is the new show. The second episode aired this past Sunday. So that's what we're going to talk about here. Steve and I mentioned it last week. Uh, So basically, spoilers will happen uh, in the last uh, 10 minutes of this episode here. So Murph and I will talk about some things that have happened in the show. So if you haven't watched it and you want to watch it, uh, I would recommend skipping ahead. So uh, just to give a quick synopsis before we get Murph's thoughts, uh, the first episode, basically Nas is the main character, as Steve and I mentioned, and he basically after a night of drinking and drugs and and, uh, hooking up with this girl, he finds himself in her apartment and she is dead and she has stab wounds everywhere. Uh, and so he panics, makes all the wrong decisions, runs, 
uh, and ends up in the police station uh, being charged with this murder, uh, having possession of the murder weapon, presumably, uh, in his jacket. So uh, that was kind of what happened in episode one. And then episode two unfolds uh, on Sunday night. So Murph, what were your thoughts on episode two and kind of were you disappointed or happy with the way that it's gone after the big kind of uh, suspense build in episode one? Yeah, so I enjoyed episode two. Um, it obviously wasn't like the eventful, action-packed uh, pilot episode that we got in episode one, but episode two was kind of more of the bureaucracy and the ins and outs of uh, kind of the intake process and uh, the court trials that, that occur you know, when someone's arrested and then is has to await trial. Um, right. And in the case for murder, um, it, that even heightens the uh, the experience even more. And I, I enjoyed, you know, seeing Nas move, you know, from that first police station and then being transferred to the high occupancy uh, building. That that whole uh, throughout the whole throughout the episode, it was really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that was. Maybe not totally what I, I, I guess we didn't really know what to expect going from episode one to episode two. I, I think uh, episode two here, like you said, was much more procedural and kind of like what's going on with the arrests and kind of what the lawyers roles in it are going to be and what the detectives role is and kind of how Nas and his family have to handle everything. And so it was kind of like a it was almost like a uh, after the big fireworks in episode one, it's like a, a step back and, and here's like kind of laying the groundwork for what's going to happen. So I think we might want to reserve judgment on the direction of the show until episode three, because Steve and I were wondering about this. Do you think this is going to end up being more of like a courtroomy show uh, or is it going to be, or are we going to get back to visiting the night of and, and seeing what happened uh, as far as in the house that night and, and how everything transpired? Which way do you see it going? That's a great question. I honestly don't considering the fact that the, the name of the show is the night of I'm hoping <laughs> get glimpses and maybe flashbacks to not only Nas's perspective of what happened that night, but maybe some of these side characters that we've seen yeah. uh, in the pilot episode. And then at the same time, I do think that it's going to be like your normal law and order kind of uh, being, uh, scenarios and scenes in the courtroom, in the jail, uh, and in the offices of, lawyers so I think it's going to kind of be a mix of both right right yeah I could totally see that and I think that um, you brought up a good point about the other side characters that have been kind of in this show and I, I think that that's going to bring me to the next point which is maybe some of the things that we've picked up on and kind of I don't know about you but I've you know so particularly in the first episode kind of trying to watch it with a keen eye to see what kind of clues are being dropped and things like that because I get the feel from this show that it's going to kind of blend in a little bit of its of like a true detective feel to it in season one, where they're going to drop a bunch of hints, and some things might come back to matter. Um, so for me, one of the things I think is the you know the the guy that walks by before Nas and Andrea go up to the apartment is that guy who gets questioned later, and so I think he's going to play a pretty big role personally because I think the detective showed him a lit a, a, a sheet of six pictures on it, and uh, one of my current theories right now is that the detective is sort of playing that game. Uh, with showing those pictures to maybe build a counter case to to it being Nas guilty in this case, um, and that I almost I'm getting a feeling from that that the detective might be playing an angle of 
some racial profiling going on against Nas because my current I kind of looked at those pictures and I have a feeling that that Nas actually isn't on that sheet even though one of the guys looks like him and that he actually asked that guy to identify Nas and basically he identified the Arab guy and that's kind of going to be the angle there that this could easily be profiling against him. I don't know if I agree with that because I kind of remember Nas being on the sheet, but but you do raise a good point. The the detective Box, yep. who is on the side cop, he he's done a good job of you know he hasn't jumped to conclusions obviously, and that's um, uh, a big case in point uh, of the fact that Nas is uh, arrested immediately, or um, I forget the legal term, but charged, I guess, yeah. Yeah, he's not charged with murder. He's a, he's charged with possession of a murder weapon right. and a, a couple of other things. So Box is entirely convinced that Nas did, in fact, commit the crime, uh, considering the fact that he's denied that he's committed the murder right. uh, continually, and he, and he hasn't uh, admitted to doing so. So Box has done uh, his job and not you know, jumped to conclusions. And he's going to try to try this to the best of his abilities and figure out exactly what happened. Right. Um, but going back to the side characters, I do agree with you that the two African-American guys, Nas and Andrea, before they went into the apartment, the camera did linger on those two yeah. for an extra second or two, mm-hmm. which immediately instills the thought that these these guys might be up to no good. Yeah. Uh, also, also the fact that the witness, I forget his name, but he testified that he was alone. Yeah, exactly. Uh, to box. Uh, when in fact we know that he was with his buddy. Right. So I think that's something that's definitely going to unfold um, possibly there. Yeah. And, and, and I think and, the, cam- the camera kind of held on his buddy, I think in particular staring up at Nas and Andrea before he walked away. And, and so, and that's kind of plays into the fact that then, you know, he said he was alone. So I think that guy he was with is going to play a pretty big role as well. And just one thing uh, to note, when Andrea and Nas go in the apartment, Nas obviously has uh, respiratory issues. Right. So when, when she, uh, when he realizes there's a cat in the room, she goes out the back door, opens the door mm-hmm. and lets the cat out. Mm-hmm. Um, and, there's a theory going that that's how a killer, aside from Nas, possibly gained entry into her apartment. Yeah, absolutely. I, I actually think that theory has some substance to it. I think um, one of the things, and that was another thing I was going to mention, is the whole theme with this cat. I, I, I have a feeling there that something big is a factor with the cat. Now, um, a couple of things that I picked up on, first of all, is that there's several references in the first episode to the cat. There's not really much in the second episode, but... Uh, in the weird intro that we get, that's very much like True Detective and Leftovers and a lot of these shows that HBO has, um, the cat is in the intro for whatever it's worth. Uh, and then also, like you said, he's allergic to the cat. They're very deliberate about showing that Andrea puts the cat outside and she doesn't really close the door behind it. Um, and so that is definitely a way that a killer could get in as well. And then this is a little bit of a stretch theory for me, but when Nas takes his shirt off at the police station when he's being examined, um, I, I picked up that a lot of those scratch marks on his back are in sets of three and pretty pretty narrow. And so I have some suspicion that uh, they could be some cat scratches. Now, I don't know why the cat would have scratched him, but just something to keep in mind that uh, I think the cat's got a role here in this show. That's some really kinky sex there, Derek. <laughs> uh, 
Um, getting the cat, getting the, the cat, cat involved. Cat's getting involved. Everyone's invited. So you're, you're in some, you're into some weird stuff, man. <laughs> um, so, so basically, uh, going with the direction going forward, uh, what are you kind of expecting to see? Uh, first of all, I guess, I guess I should ask first. Do you think Nas did it, or do you think someone else did it? I'm led to believe that somebody else did it. Yeah. If this was just your standard, this guy got drunk and committed act and, and murder this chick's chick whether it was accidental or on purpose or in the heat of the moment i mean that's one story but the hollywood eyes version is yeah. somebody else out there has ulterior motive and was out to get andrea regardless and picked the perfect moment when she uh, was with another guy that could be pinned for it yeah that's true and and she also uh th- there's some there's some there's something to wonder about with Andrea as well, because in the very beginning when she meets him, she does she makes a strange comment saying that she can't be alone tonight. And so another one of the theories I'm thinking about is that she might have known that she was in danger. Um, when she gets in the cab, she kind of is like, I'd like to I'd like to go now, please. Like she kind of as if somebody might be after her. And then she says she can't be alone. Um, so I, I have a suspicion that she might have known she was in danger in some way, um, but we don't really have any way to know. And and ultimately anything that kind of points to her being involved with something is sort of nullified by the fact that she's the victim in it and she's the one who dies so uh, it's kind of tough to it's tough to figure out what everyone's motive is and kind of what everyone's involvement is and so hopefully uh, in addition to just courtroom stuff we do get to go back and see what actually happened during the night definitely so uh, any any closing thoughts on uh, the night of overall what's your rating so far overall it's a pretty solid the first episode, I'd give an 85 for 85. pilot. Second yep. episode, I gave an 80 Murphy's mashed potatoes. <laughs> uh, Is that certified? Still, uh, it's still certified buttery mash, <laughs> but it's right on the cusp. Yeah, it's on so the we'll cusp. See how we'll see how these final six episodes go. You know, what I appreciate about this series, it's going to be eight episodes. Yeah. It's going to wrap it up, and that's going to kind of be it. So we get an opening and, and some closure to it, which is something that most TV viewers are not always accustomed to. Yeah, yeah. A lot, a lot of shows have to drive for ratings and keep dragging things on, so it's good that we're going to get that closure with the show. And uh, a miniseries probably does it, you know, a favor in that, and that it can be it can be written and closed, and, and basically they're going to tell us the story as it's written. So, should be good. Exactly. So, all righty. Thank you, James Murphy, again for joining us. And uh, when Steve's back, I'm sure we'll have you back on to continue talking about the night of maybe in a few weeks and see where we're at there. All right. Sounds good. Thanks for having me on. All righty. See you, Murph. Thanks again to James Murphy for joining us uh, for the second half of the show, which was much briefer than the first half uh, to talk about the night of. So that's all we have. Really just two segments today. It was a bunch of Boston sports for you. Uh, you know, the alternative was canceling this week's podcast without Steve. So, Uh, Thanks again to Adam for joining us. And I'll do a quick final drive. Once again, happy birthday to Steve last week. Uh, Happy birthday to our other friend Tommy, uh, one of our other roommates. Uh, Birthday was over the weekend. Uh, Another shout-out to Amazon Prime Day. Uh, This is a new microphone that I've been using. Uh, Adam was not on the new microphone as he was Skyped in. But new microphones that we picked up on Prime Day. So hopefully the quality is good and hopefully uh, everything sounds good. And speaking of Prime Day, we have to give a congratulations to our buddy Doug, Uh, who is now going to be working for Amazon, took a great job offer with them. Uh, We're going to miss him, but he's got a great opportunity ahead. So congrats to Doug, uh, and that's my quick little final drive. So thank you guys for listening. Thanks to Adam for joining. Thanks to James Murphy for joining to talk about the night of. Uh, And thank you to Murphy Brothers Entertainment, who is not James Murphy's sponsor, but uh, sponsored on his behalf by somebody else, uh, Devin. So 
Thanks again to Murphy Brothers Entertainment for their third consecutive podcast sponsor, uh, which always helps us out. So that does it for episode 29. Steve, I know you hated this episode. Uh, No worries, though. We'll be back next week for episode 30 if you heard it here second. Later days.